Corinthians chapter 5. While y'all are turning there, anybody know what today is? No, I'm not talking about St. Patrick's Day. We are Baptists. I don't know why everybody's wearing green this morning. No, today, seriously, is the first weekend since January 26th when we haven't had any rain. Yay! Can you believe it's that long, all the way back to January? So, now watch it rain this afternoon. <laughs> Let me ask you, uh, or begin this morning couple questions. How do you determine right from wrong? What standard or standards do you use to determine right and wrong? Let me read some headlines. Some of these also have the subtitles from recent news. If you want to stop Florida sex trafficking, legalize prostitution. Sex workers, colon, we need to legalize prostitution after arrest. And then the subtitle is, his arrest spotlights a bigger issue, which is that prostitution should be legalized. Here's the last one. Hollywood Madam wants to stop human trafficking she says, legalize consensual sex for money. These were all in response to Robert Kraft, billionaire and owner of the New England Patriots, who was arrested on February 22nd on two counts of soliciting a prostitute. So what do you think? Should we legalize prostitution? Was craft wrong? Who decides that? You see, there are a lot of people, not just the headlines here, that say that the problem is not with craft, but the problem is prostitution and some other things like that, not to have them legal, also marijuana, things like that, is to be archaic. And we need to legalize stuff. We need to practice situational ethics where you just determine what is wrong based on a particular situation. Or we need to say we will base our morality based on whatever the majority suggests. After all, we are in a country that is progressing and we should just progress. And these ideas are outdated. So again, how do you determine what is right and wrong? Let me share a couple other statistics. The percent of Americans who admitted they have had sex on a first date, according to a USA Today article, is 34%. According to WebMD, 75% of Americans say they had premarital sex. Another statistic tells us that 20% of people look at pornography every week. Percent of American teenagers who will have sex before they graduate is about 60%. So is sex outside of marriage, if lots of people are doing it, is it still adultery? If at least 20% of the population is looking at pornography, is lust still wrong? Do moral values change according to society? 
have the right to say that we need to live by God's standards. Well, we are not the first society to kind of grapple with these kinds of questions. The Apostle Paul faced a very similar situation when he went into the sensual city of Ephesus with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was the center of worship of the goddess Artemis, which was the goddess of fertility. Prostitution was just part of temple worship, so to speak. There were hundreds of prostitutes at the temple of Artemis. The economy of Ephesus, part of the one of the main tenets of the economy at Ephesus was the was the selling of little miniature statues of the goddess of Artemis. And then I read something that was really interesting I'd never read before until I was researching this particular sermon, that the first form of advertising that was ever found in ancient history was a promotion for a brothel at the city of Ephesus. So that's the, the type of environment that Paul was going into when he brought the gospel there. And so it's not surprising that a significant portion of the book of Ephesus deals with morals and standards and those types of things. And that's what we've been looking at for the last few weeks in Ephesians 4 and now today in chapter 5. The first week we talked about mindset. Paul talked about how important our mindset is. And then last week we talked about speech. And now he's going to devote 14 verses to standards. So we've been doing this series, Switch. And Paul's going to say you need to switch from a, he's telling these Christians, you need to switch from a life of promiscuity to a life of purity. And we've talked before about, he said in the first three chapters, you are children of God saved by grace. He says because you are children of God, these are the things that ought to be different in your life. And one of them is standards. So we're going to kind of dive into this passage this morning. It's kind of lengthy and it's kind of chunky and it's kind of difficult to, to explain. So we're just going to kind of do our best this morning. But there's three principles that apply to the Ephesians that definitely apply to a culture like ours today. The first one is this. God set a universal standard of morality. Notice verse one. Follow God's example Therefore, as dearly loved children, follow God's example. Some of your versions may say be imitators of God. So everybody understands what imitators mean. Be imitators of God. And this kind of hits on the basic question that our society struggles with now in this culture war. Is there a God in heaven whom we are accountable or are we just free, whatever goes, goes, to establish our own standards of right and wrong? Everybody just do what's right in their own eyes, which seems to kind of be where our society is a lot of the time. You know, we live what philosophers call, Christian theologians call, a postmodern world. And that postmodern thought process is there is no standard of right and wrong, no absolute Standard, And each individual is free to choose whatever he thinks is best. And I read a 
guy by the name of Steve Manfield that kind of helped me understand this, and I'm going to share a little bit with how he explains this, and, and maybe it'll help you understand it too. He kind of points out what we call the pre-modern days, pre-modern days being before Christ, there was a tribal mindset. Truth was local, and it was tribal. So for instance, a tribe that lived down by the sea might worship a sea god. Maybe it was like half fish and half man. So that, that was their god, little chief. And then the mountain people, they might worship some spectacular mountain peak somewhere. And that was their god. And then maybe the desert people, they worshipped the wind perhaps. And so that was their god. And so they had a completely different god. And they worshipped in a completely different manner. And they had different rituals and different customs. And each of these groups, it was tribal and local. Like maybe the mountain people drank blood during their worship. And the desert people are like, that's just despicable. So things were kind of localized. And they were tribal. A traveler going through an area, he might worship however these different groups. One day he's worshiping a sea god. Maybe the next day he's in the mountains and he's worshiping a mountain god, so on and so forth. Remember our story of Jonah? You saw this a little bit in the story of Jonah. Remember he was on the boat. And they're worried that the boat's about to capsize in that big storm. And they thought it was because there was a God that was mad at them. And so they start asking the questions. And Jonah said, it's me. It's my God. And they said, well, who's your God? Because they were expecting, you know, some God, like we just talked about, a tribal and local God. And Jonah says, well, my God is the God of the universe. Well, that's surprising to these guys. That, that was not something they'd ever heard before. Nobody had a, a God that was in charge of all of the universe. That was a different kind of concept. So these, these, these sailors had the same concept that most of, of the Roman Empire had. Each culture kind of had its own standard of truth, the pre-modern era. You could worship any God you wanted to in the Roman Empire as long as you worship Caesar too. You know what got the Christians in trouble? It wasn't that they worshipped Jesus Christ. It was the fact that they said, we're only going to worship Jesus Christ, and we're not going to worship Caesar. So that's what got them into trouble. So you had this pre-modern thought, it's tribal, it's that kind of thing, and Christians weren't the only ones. You had Islam come along and say, we're the truth, and... You had forms of government that really weren't forms of government. They were philosophies, for example, communism. And so now we've moved in, we're out of that, and we live in what they call the postmodern age. And I'm setting all this up for a reason here. And people have concluded that, that none of these ideas really worked. When I say people, I'm talking about on a worldwide scale. Well, Christianity had brought peace. Islam had brought peace and unity. Communism didn't, didn't work. And so people have arrived at kind of a different thought process. And it's called the postmodern thought process. Christianity is fine. It works for you. That's your tribe. Don't try to impose your standards on me. One culture is just as good as another culture. Be tolerant of all the different beliefs. You can believe whatever you find. That's truth for you. 
And so really what we're doing is we're actually reverting back, even though they call it most postmodern thought, we're reverting back to the paganism days where it's tribal again. Everybody just, you've got your little tribe and, and your little beliefs. And some people, you know, they just kind of put all these things together and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in Muhammad. I believe that the Dalai Lama teaches us a lot. I believe that we can learn from the, uh, the Hindu meditation practices. And they just kind of take all little parts of these different beliefs and kind of make a smorgasbord out of them. And it's just a little bit of everything. And truth is local, tribal, individual. And this isn't so much a, an organized religion, because it can't be, because it's just bits and pieces. But it's more like a mood that's just oozing through our country, so to speak. I mean, you hear people like Oprah Winfrey promoting this type of belief all the time, and, and people like her. There's thousands of college professors that, that are kind of pushing this stuff out there. The liberal journalists, they're pushing it out there. You know, people that say there is no meta-narrative, meta that there's no big story for all of us. It's all micro-narrative, little stories for everybody. No absolute truth. It's just whatever's true for your tribe. It's seen in advertising. Come to Vegas, because what you do in Vegas stays in Vegas. That kind of idea <coughs> permeates over into Mardi Gras, you know? What happens down there, don't worry about it. Permeates over into spring break kind of activities. What is forbidden at home is perfectly permissible here. And then, you know, same thing with, with prom night or derby week or bachelor parties or whatever. Just this thought. And, and it's also espoused by liberal churches. Yeah, you know, it's okay to check your Bible, but the Bible can't be your final authority. You have to look and see whatever society you're living in, what they believe. How about Hollywood? Let me share just a couple examples because they are a big promoter of postmodern thought. Remember when the movie Broke Back, Broke Back Mountain came out and it basically had sex scenes of gay cowboys? That was the kind of premise of the movie. And, I mean, there was all kinds of protests, which there should have been, but despite the fact that it was only 27th at the box office and received eight nominations and actually won three Oscars, and now those kind of movies pop up like Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a similar kind of movie. Nobody even notices anymore because we've just kind of become tolerant and accepted, accepting of it. The movie Crash came out, I think, about 10 years ago. And it finished 49th in the box office, but was received, not just nominated, but received the award for Best Picture. They used the F word, 99 different times. Listen to what the producer of that movie, the director of that movie said when he received his award for the best picture. Paul Haggis is his name. Art is not a mirror to hold up to society, but a hammer with which to shape it. That tells you a lot about where you're coming from. I want to quote a scripture verse that addresses this attitude. Romans chapter 1, verse 32, and this is from the Message Bible. They know well, perfectly well, they are spitting in God's face, and they don't care. And worse, 
hand out prizes to those who do the worst things best. And that just addresses our society so much. Somebody needs to put that verse on a t-shirt. I give you permission to do that. Might ought to check with the people who published the message Bible, but there is so much truth in that. Steve Manfield points out some other things about the postmodern mind and their common characteristics. They are suspicious of structure, big government, big corporations, organized religion, big churches. They also hold in a contempt authority, so president, police, the military. I mean, they just hit it. He just hits the nail on the head. Anything in the past is seen as an attempt to impose rules upon today's society. And the younger generation, talk to millennials, and they are totally, not all of them, but a lot of them are just totally buying into this. Church attendance is on the decline, not just that age group, but all age groups. By some estimates, church attendance is down 30% in the past decade. And the emphasis is on what? Tolerance, freedom of expression, get in your tribe that shares the same experiences that you have. And when Paul comes to Ephesus, he says there is a God in heaven who is the standard of truth. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. The truth is universal. He is the God of every tongue and every tribe and every nation. The truth is comprehensible. The truth is unchanging. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't matter what the majority says. It's God's truth. And one decision each of us need to make on a daily basis is, who's going to set the standards for our life? Well, a Christian is one who switches from his own personal preferences to putting God first and his established standards. So that's the first one. Second principle is this. God's standing standards regarding morality is very high. There is a sense in which perfection is God himself. Be imitators of God. We're going to kind of go through some verses now. And, you know, if you're one of those kind of people that make notes in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline these, circle and box them, whatever you do. But he kind of starts to explain God's standard of morality and what that looks like. And he says in verse 3, God's standard of morality means there's not even a hint of sexual immorality. He says Christians are to be so distinctive that there's not insinuation, there's just not even a whisper of sexual immorality. What, what does that mean? It means there's not a hint of provocative dress. It means teenagers and young adults aren't emulating the late, latest fashions that they necessarily see in pop culture. It means you're not rushing out the door and changing your clothes once you get to school or altering your clothes because then you're not meeting your parents' standards. For all of us, it means there's not suggestive flirtation. It means there's not the, the slightest hint of, of cute, suggestive comments, questionable associations, or, or just careless appearances. Now, I've mentioned to you before that we have a staff policy here that you, you, you just don't get in vehicles with, with other females by yourself and them by themselves unless you know, it's your daughter and your wife or whatever. And somebody kind of 
said one day they thought that was kind of silly. Like, our children's director, Mitzi, and I are going to the same event, and it's just the two of us, that she takes a car, I take a car, and they kind of hinted that they thought that was just kind of silly. Well, Scripture doesn't seem to think it's kind of silly. Because right here it says, not even a hint of sexual immorality. No questions that can be asked. It also sends a great message to our spouses about how important we think our marriages are and we need to protect them. So he says, not a hint of sexual immorality, and then he adds to that, or any kind of greed. And those kind of things kind of go hand in hand a lot of times. I don't know if you remember over the book of Acts, chapter 19, Paul's in the city of Ephesus, and he's preaching against these idols that we were talking about, these, these Artemis idols, these little miniature statues. And things were changing, and people were becoming convicted that the sales of these little statues, the sales were actually going down. And merchants were getting hurt in their, in their businesses because they couldn't sell these things to the point that there was actually a riot. And Paul had to leave the city fearing for his life. Well, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And you see that today where people will sacrifice morals for greed and for money. There's a growing trend in our country among older people that they don't get remarried because it affects their social security and health insurance and those kind of things. So they, they just live together. This is older folks because it, economically they say that it, it is better. So greed is negating their purity and their witness for Jesus Christ. And they have a decision to make. What is more important, a few dollars or your witness for Jesus Christ? Years ago, I read Jack Eckerd's uh, autobiography about uh, Eckerd drugstores and the whole story behind that. And one of the things he did was he wouldn't allow Playboy magazine and other risque magazines like that in his stores. And people just, you know, pitched a fit. You know, you're losing millions and millions of dollars. He said, I don't care. He said, it's more important to me to stand up for my faith. Or another example, how about Chick-fil-A? He said, we're not going to be open on Sundays. We want our folks to be able to go to church. We're going to honor the day. God sure has blessed them for doing that, hasn't he? It's not worth it, Paul says. Not even a hint of immorality or greed or impurity. See, we're to be distinctive people. We're to be different. I remember about a grandfather who is also a pastor. He was sitting in a the living room on a Saturday afternoon watching a college basketball game with his grandson who was 11 years old. And he said when it went to commercial break, one of the commercial breaks, there was an advertisement for aftershave lotion and there was this real scantily clad young lady that was doing the promotion of it, so to speak. And he said it just kind of made him real uncomfortable. And then he heard his grandson say this, Grandpa, have you seen the lamp in this room? Did you notice the red wall over there? And he turned and he looked at his, his grandson who had kind of this sheepish look on his face. And he said, Charlie, did your parents teach you to look away from the TV when this kind of stuff went on? He said, yeah, that's what my mommy and daddy tell me to do. Now I'm going to quote him now, the grandfather. He said, he was doing better than I. I said, I'm proud of you. Not a hint of immorality. I asked him later. Do you like girls, Charlie? He grinned and said, Not yet. Lessons you can learn from an 11-year-old. 
The standard is not the average set by our culture. It's what God lays out there. Not even a hint of sexual immorality. Here's another place for you to underline in verse 4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. When I was in high school, uh, one of the jobs I had, I worked for a year for an oil-filled welding company out in West Texas. There's lots of derricks and pumps and all kinds of welding equipment. And uh, so I worked for this company that built those and welded them, fixed them, repaired them, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it was a rough, rough group. I mean, there wasn't a lot of Christian values among these guys. You've heard the term roughnecks and rednecks and those kind of things. That's the kind of people I was working with. I was the only teenager there. And, you know, raunchy jokes and coarse language and sexual innuendos just kind of, that was, that was just the ordinary thing. Their idea of the weekend was going and getting drunk and going to strip clubs and, and that kind of thing. And so that was kind of the environment I was in. And, uh, you know, when they found out I was going to be a preacher, they just... You know, at first, just like took glee in seeing how many off-color things they could say around me. And, and I never, you know, like hit them over the head with Bible verses. But it was amazing over a couple weeks that all kind of stopped. And, you know, I would, they'd tell something and I'd just kind of walk away or politely, you know, change the subject or something like that. And eventually, over a couple months, they started apologizing to me. Whenever they would cuss. Not because I said anything, not because I was some super saint, because God was just kind of convicting them. And I know some of you work in workplaces that the, the language is raunchy and there's all kinds of cursing and, and those kind of things. And verse 4 is telling us that we ought to be uncomfortable in those kind of environments. And certainly we shouldn't, you know, add to those kind of things. And you don't have to be prudish about it, and you don't have to beat them over their head with your Bible or condemn people. But I think there are ways that you just you politely walk away, you smile, maybe you tell a clean joke, change the subject. Because God's standards are high. No obscenity, no foolish talk, no coarse language. And it's always interesting. I talk to guys, and some of you are sitting in this room that will tell me that, that, that you don't participate in that stuff, and you're not legalistic about it. But then when somebody needs somebody to pray for them or something happens in their life, those kind of people come and seek you because they know you're different and they know what your standards are. And I think that's incredibly awesome. He uses another thing here in verse 7, talking about his high standards. He says, therefore, do not be partners with them. Don't give credence to their activities. Don't recommend them to others. Don't engage with them. Don't have dialogues with them that are unhealthy. Don't click on articles that are that are just garbage. I'm amazed sometimes when you open your web browser how many articles there are on some immorality between celebrities or some something or another, some celebrities wearing some see-through outfit or something like that. You know, if people didn't click on those, they wouldn't be there, and they would go away. We need to at least do our part. And then one final phrase when he's talking about the standard that he said. Don't even mention what unbelievers do in secret. That doesn't mean you need to be uninformed. It doesn't mean you need to be naive or legalistic. It's just saying you don't have to give unnecessary details. You don't have to get, get real descriptive. It's not necessary this morning for me to show you pictures of, of uh, unfit outfits from Mardi Gras. It's not, I don't have to show you pictures of, a, of, of gay pride parades or whatever. 
Let the Bible be our God. We can describe beauty and things like that without getting bored. Look at how in the Old Testament how Rachel was described. It says she was lovely in form and beautiful. So we don't have to use the world's terms is what that verse is talking about. So his standards are high. No hint of immorality. No coarse joking. No partnering with the immoral. No details about what goes on in depraved settings. Third one is this. Third principle. The purpose of God's standards are for our own benefit. Go back to verse 1 for just a second. Follow God's example and be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children. Brent talked about the second part of that. Dearly loved children. What do parents do for their children? They set boundaries. They set parameters. They say, don't do drugs. Don't drink. Don't drive too fast. You have to be home at a certain time. One of the things that one of my, my, my older boys used to always complain about, probably one of the meanest parents in the world because we wouldn't allow go-karts or four-wheelers. And my wife's a nurse, so she's seen a lot of paralyzed kids, and I'm not suggesting you have to copy that. I'm just giving you an example of, of something that's that a, that a standard that we had kind of set that they didn't like and thought it was negative and restrict, restrictive. But we did that for their own good because I knew my two boys, the, the, the older two boys. I mean, they, you know, the emergency room was a place like we had a, a room that we had paid for because we were just there all the time. I mean, like you knew the, the doctors on the first name basis kind of thing. And uh, my poor son, Sean, he's the caboose of four and, or out of five, actually. <laughs> That's pretty bad. But anyway, he's, he's the fifth. And uh, so there are things that the others got to do that he doesn't get to do because his brothers and sisters blew it for him. And he'll, he'll protest. Like he, he wanted a trampoline when he was younger. Like, no, you can't have a trampoline. Why? Because your brother Austin broke his leg on a trampoline, so you don't get one. And he'll just bust at me, and I'll say, you go talk to Austin. It's his fault, not my fault. But we set standards for our kids for their own good. Let's look at some of the verses where they kind of elaborate. Let no one deceive you with empty words, it says in verse 6. And as parents, we say, don't let strangers entice you to get into cars. No matter what they promise, just don't do it. And this passage says, don't let the world suck you in. You'll be deceived. You'll be disappointed. You'll get hurt. The world preaches physical indulgence. And they end up with disappointment. God says, Love is a personal sacrifice, and you follow Jesus' commands. And you know, when we sacrifice the sensual pleasures of this world, and we commit ourselves to God's standards, God's standards in marriage and in the rest of our life, what are the benefits for us and for our spouses? They're quite huge, aren't they? You know, Tim Tebow is known for his stand on premarital sex. He's 31 years old now, and he's actually engaged. But here's one of the things that he said about his desire to wait. He said, this is People Magazine he was talking to. He says, of course I want a woman who I'm attracted to. That's a very big part of it. But I'm looking for someone who loves Jesus and loves people. We have to let our dreams, we have to let our passions, we have to let our purpose lead us into the right decisions. I'm just kind of piggybacking on what he says. You know, there's something very welcoming about a fireplace and a fire in a fireplace. 
But there is nothing more frightening than a, than a fire blazing out of control. God created sexual desires to stoke the fires of a marriage, but not to burn the house down. And there is something special when you live a life of love for each other and you sacrifice for each other and you understand each other and, and two become one. I saw a real funny, funny interview with a couple older couples that had been married 40, 50 years, and they were talking about the aging process and dating and how they met and all that kind of stuff. And this, this just tickled me. They, they were talking and they were laughing, and they said, when we were younger, there was, there was a rule, you can look but don't touch. And now they're you know, in their 60s and 70s. We have a new rule in our house now, you can touch but don't look. And they just giggled about their relationship and their intimacy. And I thought to myself, they know more than Hollywood will ever understand, more than the late Edie Beckner would have ever understood about what real love and what real relationships are about. God's plan for intimacy in marriage, it's good for us. All of his standards are good for us. One last phrase, verse 8. For you were once darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Children of light. What do they do? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live in, in righteousness and goodness and truth. As children of God, we're to, to seek the light. We're to seek to reflect God's light. What happens if you're in a dark room and somebody turns on the light? You know, the first tendency is to kind of cover our eyes and say, turn off the light. I think sometimes as Christians, we're living in this society and we kind of want to shade our eyes and not reflect God's light. It's almost like we want to turn it off. In reality, as God's children, we need to be a light in this world. We don't have to be legalistic about it. We don't have to beat people over the head with Bibles. We don't have to carry signs down the street, but people ought to know where we stand, and we ought to be ready to give an answer for the truth that is in us that talks about in Peter. We need to be the light. We don't need to be covering our eyes and pretending. We can't change everything, but we can change our families. We can change our corner of the world, so to speak. We can be a light in our community, and that's what he's talking about here. Be a of Christ. Are you that? Are you a reflection at your workplace, at your school, your neighborhood? Because that's what we're commanded.